only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the briar, and the, br- the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother, and fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. This is God's word for God's people. That's a great story here. We got a new episode in Luke's historical report of the life of Christ. Uh, last week, of course, we got the, the, uh, the story of the centurion and his servant needing to be healed and how Christ healed him from not even being in the same room or in the same house as a servant and, was, and healed him of his sickness. And now we have another episode of a healing. And it's interesting how the gospel writers will always kind of do this pattern where they'll spend a long section of teaching and then give you a long section of healing and then go back to a long section of teaching and then go back to a long section of healing. And usually these are thematic. There's a reason why he includes these episodes together or after or before. Um, and we see Luke uh, having almost uh, this, this entire chapter uh, really kind of introducing us or answering the question that John the Baptist had. Or actually, the, maybe the followers of John the Baptist. Is, is Jesus really the one we are expecting? Is he the one that we have been expecting to come? Or should we look for another who is worthy? Should we be looking for a new, another Messiah? Or is Jesus truly the Messiah that we have been waiting for? That is the great question this chapter of, that Luke is trying to is, is revealing to us or answering to us. And, and before we get more into this, I kind of want to uh, introduce uh, this sermon. The, the title is... I have it right here, the ice split star-wise, and I'll get to a reason why I titled it that. But usually what we have, when we have these, these historical events that happen in history, right? These events like, um, you think of like the Revolutionary War, the, the shot that was heard around the world, as they called the shot at Concord and Lexington that started the Revolutionary War, that basically started the Great Rebellion against the British Empire and the United States, and the United States becoming a country. This was a, a great moment. This little town in, in Massachusetts was the, the center, the epicenter that led to the revolution that started the United States of America. The richest and most powerful nation in the world today started in 1776 in a little town of Concord and Lexington, the shot around the world. Or the event like the World War I with the, the, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. This, this assassination starts this great war that killed many, many, many people. You have, you have obviously Pearl Harbor, right? You have this, this attack by the Japanese against the United States fleet in the Pacific, which, which brought the United States into the Great War, World War II, and fighting the Japanese and fighting the Germans, which basically sent the United States to the, the modern power that it is. You think of 9-11 as well, this historical moment in time when, when these, these group of men uh, uh, hijacked airplanes and crashed them into the, tw- the, the, twin, the Twin Towers in New York and into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Of course, one of them actually crashed in Pennsylvania. You have these historical moments. We can remember, especially 9-11, if you were alive, you can remember when that happened. You can remember watching it on television. It changed the world in a lot of ways. The United States is still fighting a war because of what happened on 9-11. 
this event was a very historical, uh, was a, uh, a day that will, as, as, uh, as FDR says after 9-11, a day that will live in infamy. These days, these historical, these historical moments in time define generations. These history does matter, right? Like when you, when you were in school and you learned history, you're like, oh, I've learned boring dates and boring figures and boring, boring places. But history does matter. Things that happen in the past affect the future. And of course, again, like I said, the, 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 as we see in, uh, starting in verse 18 of Luke 7, that the disciples of John uh, were, 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 in a sense, re- re- responding to a question that they had, that is Jesus the one? He says in verse 19, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Should we look for another? And what does Jesus say? He says, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Up, the poor have the gospel preached them. He even says, the dead are raised. This is the first story. This is the first episode in the gospel of Luke of someone being raised from the dead. That Jesus is the one that they have been expecting. We've already learned that Christ has authority in the episode with the centurion and the servant. He healed the centurion's servant without even being in the presence of the servant. Isn't that crazy, right? Like Jesus, like even, it was, I think Sam brought this up, he didn't even say, you're healed, did he? He didn't even say a word. And he comes back, I came back and the servant was healed. Christ obviously has authority, he has power to heal. He is also the savior of the world, not only the Jews. He, is, he went to the centurion. He helped the centurion. He healed a centurion, a Gentile servant. So he's not only the savior of the Jews, but he's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah for the world. Uh, fulfilling Abraham's covenant that he would be a blessing to the nations, not just the Jewish people, but to the nations. Christ is a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 that Christ, Abraham's seed that, that, he, that, that Abraham said it would be a blessing to the entire world, and Christ is a fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 12. We see kind of a, a shadow of that, or kind of a, a beginning of that fulfillment when he interacts with the centurion and says, I have not seen any greater faith in the entire nation of Israel than this man, a Gentile soldier. Very interesting. Christ is a blessing to the Gentile. As well, we learn in the episode today that Christ, who is full of power and authority, also is full of compassion. The theme of this story, of this episode in Luke, is compassion. That Jesus, while being full of power and authority, also has compassion and mercy. So the main idea of the of the the sermon this morning is the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, has come, and the world will never be the same again. The incarnate God, Jesus Christ, has come, and the world will never be the same again. So point number one, so I have four points here, and the purposeful Messiah, the compassionate Messiah, the powerful Messiah, and the reluctant crowd. So point number one is the purposeful Messiah. Messiah is is obviously the word meaning the anointed, that Christ is the anointed one, that he was the one who was promised in the Old Testament by the prophets to come, and that he would be the one who would fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets and be the great prophet that they had been waiting for for such a long time. So it says here, Luke says, soon afterwards. See, you have to be careful when you read the Bible because you're like, oh, soon afterwards. You kind of just like read right past that, right, and go right to the meat. 
But you gotta be, you got to be careful. There's, something, there's, there's, a, there's an important point to be made here that, that soon afterwards, after he had spent time in Capernaum, after he had spent time with the centurion, or actually spending time with him, but healing his servant, soon afterwards, he goes to the city called Nain. We don't know exactly how many days in between when he was in Capernaum and when he actually went to Nain, but it was a, an indefinite amount of time. But his plan was not to stay in Capernaum, which is what kind of his headquarters. We kind of, we kind of established that way back when, that Jesus kind of made Capernaum his, his headquarters of his ministry. He wasn't planning to stay there very long. So he travels southwest about 20 miles, which is about a day's journey. Um, I'm not sure what that would be like in a car, depending on how far your family can drive in a day, right? For some, it's like 12 or 15 hours in a day. For some, it's like four or five, depending on the, the children or the, or the family, how far you can drive. So when we think about a day's drive, for some of you, maybe that's, maybe that's to, to Knoxville or Memphis. Maybe that's up to Michigan or into the Kansas City or whatever you define a day's journey. That is, they traveled about 20 miles, which is about a day's journey to this t- tiny, tiny village that is only mentioned in the Bible called Nain, this tiny, tiny, tiny village that the Messiah, this great, this great king who had, grown, who had accumulated a large crowd of people around him, why would he want to spend time in this little village called Nain? But he goes to this little town. Nain is this one-stop light town on the, on, on the way to somewhere, basically. You've driven through these towns, right? We were driving through these towns on the way to my in-law's lake house. These towns that have like one stoplight. Maybe you grew up in this town. But this is a town that people don't usually come to. They go through. They're going somewhere else to to a bigger city or to a bigger area, and they get stopped at that one stoplight in your your neighborhood, right, in your your town. This is what Nain was, this tiny village, this one stoplight type of town. Why would Jesus travel there? A large crowd was accompanying him, yet he travels soon afterwards to Nain. We already know from the book of John, chapter 4, that Jesus had this, this, this tendency to go out of the way to these towns like Samaria when he went, met the woman at the well. Why would he go there? Most of the Jews would go around Samaria to get into Galilee. Yet Jesus goes into Samaria. He goes to these areas that others would avoid or not plan to go to, but yet Jesus goes there because he has purpose for being there. Obviously, Jesus had purpose to go to Samaria to actually talk to the woman at the well. He purposefully wanted to talk to her, and that's why he went there. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a theology that is wrong called open theism, that God is growing in his maturity and knowledge like the world, like us. That God is not, is not, he's not omniscient, he doesn't have all knowledge, that God is always changing And God is rarely ever purposeful because he doesn't know the future. God does not know the future, yet we learn from the episode that Christ traveled to Nain purposefully. He went there for a purpose. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of a widow. So as Jesus was walking to this town, as he goes into the gate, at that moment, a funeral proceeding walks by him going outside the gate. So that's interesting that this, this young man, this boy, this man has died. And obviously he died while Jesus was still in Capernaum. But yet Jesus, knowing the future, being God himself, being purposeful, 
traveled to Nain, this tiny village southwest, 20 miles, to interact with this funeral proceeding. This boy must have been dead the day before, which means Christ left Capernaum at the proper time so that he would arrive at the gate of this tiny village of Nain at the exact time this widow's son's funeral was proceeding. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, he walked, right? He didn't, like, drive a car. He didn't, like, time it on his watch exactly. He didn't know about the... It's not like he got an invitation to the funeral proceeding. He was there because he knows the future, and God, Christ purposely went to this little town. Jewish custom dictated the funeral and a burial take place soon after the death. So he obviously had died the day before. The for Christ's plan was to arrive in Nain to interact with a specific particular widow at a fixed specific particular place in time. God is the eternal God. He is always present. He is the I am. He is the Lord of time. He, know when, he knows when things are going to happen. He knows what is going to happen in your life. Isaiah 50, 46, 9 through 10, I am God and there is no other. I know the future. I know what's going to happen. I know what's happening in your life. I know what's going to happen in your life five years from now. God knows, and he has purposefully, in, purposefully interacts into your life. I was reading this article uh, this week, um, and it was really, um, you have to be careful when you read these articles because they're pretty graphic. It was in a, a magazine called The Atlantic, and it was talking about the intimacies, loss of intimacy, basically. And it was talking mostly about sex and how our, our, how our culture and our society uh, gets intimacy. And a lot of it's pornography. A lot of it's masturbation and these other things that people are literally, sex is going down amongst uh, 18 to 29-year-olds. And the reason, it's not, like, it's not because the, there's not like men and women, to, uh, there's a sense where there's a loss of intimacy, that people are getting uh, uh, fulfillment sexually through artificial means, through, uh, through pornography and these other means, not through actually having sex with one another. And, and I had this thought that people don't know how to have intimacy. They, are, they don't even know how to meet. A, a man doesn't even know how to interact with a girl and ask her out. And a girl doesn't even know how to respond when they're asked out. They're, they're, because people use Tinder and these other apps and use pornography, they don't even know how to interact with one another. And I just thought about this. I'm like, how thankful that I met my wife. Because like, it seems like there's a big issue today with people meeting one another and actually dating and courting and, and getting engaged and getting married. And God is, was very purposeful in my life. When I, was, uh, when I had just got back from Sweden, I was 25 years old, and I was working with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I had that moment where I was like, I'm 25, I'm not dating anyone, oh my gosh. Who am I going to meet? I don't make any money. I'm, I'm working as like a campus minister. I make very little money. Who would possibly want to marry me? And I just feel like I didn't have any prospects. And you have that moment. I don't know if you've ever gotten that moment where you just feel like, all right, who, do, who am I going to meet? How am I going to meet someone? And you have this panic, right? And then God is so purposeful. I, enter, I go to this, 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 this Bible study that I had never been to before, and I meet Lisa Castro, or Lisa Quillman. And God is very purposeful, was very purposeful in my life when I met my wife. And, and if you know Lisa, you know that I definitely married up. And, and like, so God is, God is very purposeful. He knows. He knows everything about us. He knows our future. And God is setting things in place to, to bless you and, and to bring uh, 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 his blessing into your life. God is 
very purposeful in your life. This dead man was being carried out, the only son of a widow, the only son of a widow. This, in a sense, a widow in that time, if she had no husband and no sons, who was going to take care of her? She lost her last means of support. The, the prophets like Jeremiah 6.26 and Zechariah 12.10 actually utilizes the mourning of your lost son as an example or a model of suffering and persecution. He says, uh, mourn as one who's mourning for their only son who has passed away or has died. Her grief was the model for extreme mourning, the thought of a mother who had no sons because they passed away was an example of extreme mourning. If y'all have seen the movie Save It Private Ryan, the kind of the, the story, the plot is that this, this mother had, uh, had five sons and they were all in the war, World War II, and four of them had passed away. And, then, and so the, the mission that, that these, these, this company was sent on was to go get the last ones, Private Ryan, and get him home. Because this mother was going to lose all five kids in the same war. And this, this story is based off an actual story that happened during the Civil War, that these five brothers all were in the Union Army, and all five of them died during the Civil War. And this woman, uh, Bixby, Lydia, Baker, um, Lydia Parker Bixby, was the woman. And President Lincoln wrote her a letter because she lost five sons in the same war. She went from having five sons to having no sons. I mean, think the thought of that. The thought of losing your five sons in the same war, what devastation she, she must have experienced. Her husband had passed away too, so she was a widow and she had lost her five sons. And President Lincoln sent her this letter um, and, and, and it talks about her overwhelming grief, that she obviously had to have been experiencing overwhelming grief. That God, Christ comes to this exact moment in time, this exact place to talk to this exact and woman, this widow in Nain, to show her compassion. He arrived during a horrible time for one poor widow in a tiny village, and her life changed forever, right? So not only is Christ the purposeful Messiah, he's also the compassionate Messiah. It even says here, this, when the Lord saw her, he saw her. Now we, we know from the description here there was a crowd of people. Not only was there a crowd of people following Jesus, who, were, who was kind of in his company, but there's also a crowd of people with the woman. And he saw her. He took notice of her. This sizable crowd from the city was with her, and Christ was accompanied by a large crowd, yet he saw her. He took notice of her. Christ knew the reason for his journey to Nain. He came to show compassion on this specific woman on a, on a, in Nain at a specific time and place in her life. The Lord, he is God. This is the first time Luke has mentioned Jesus as the Lord. He is God. He created the universe. He is the Lord over death. He's the Lord over time. He's the Lord over death. He felt compassion for her and said, do not weep. He had compassion this word for compassion comes from a Greek word that means, it comes from the root that talks about the gut, the bowels, the intestines. That this compassion comes from the gut. You're moved with pity for her overwhelming grief because she lost her only son and he has compassion for her. He's overwhelmed with pity for her. It's the physical effects of emotions. Like when you feel so bad about something, it hurts in your actual gut. 
Christ had compassion. He was the God who was passionate for sinners. We see this throughout the Bible in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, that God is one who's full of mercy, full of compassion and grace. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that we don't have a Savior who's not sympathetic to us. We have a Savior who's the great high priest who has experienced tribulation, who's experienced being disappointed, who's experienced being being overwhelmed like in the garden. We have a sympathizing God. He understands the effects of sin. Sin has caused death. It has caused the fallen world, and he's sympathetic of this world. And he has compassion on this woman, this widow. The desperate need for God's mercy and compassion. We need his compassion. We need his mercy. And he knows that. He understands that. He says, do not weep. A word of assurance, a word of comfort. The one who the people were expected has come. The dead will be raised. The poor will hear the gospel preached to them. The Lord is over everything. So trust him. In our lives, with our lives. That's why he says, do not weep. He gives this word of assurance, this word of comfort to her. Because he's the Lord over everything. He's in control of everything. We should trust him with our lives because he is in control. He's the Lord over everything. If he's the Lord over our jobs, if he's the Lord over our marriages and our family, if he's the Lord over our our lives, then we should trust him. And find comfort in his words. Do not weep. So he is the purposeful Messiah. He is the compassionate Messiah. Christ came with purpose. He showed compassion on a specific widow in a specific place at a specific time. And he revealed his power over death. He is the powerful Messiah. He came up and touched the coffin, it said. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. There's purpose in the world. God is in the world. God is not the transcendent God that he just created and he, 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 does, he definitely withholds and, and sustains the world. But he's also in the world. He is, he's present with us. He's present here with us. He's blessing us here. Either God is blessing you or he is here to judge you because you do not have Christ and you do not believe in Christ and you continue to reject God. He is here to judge you for not believing and not trusting him or he's here to bless you because you've put your faith in him and you've trusted him. God is in the world, he is present in the world, he has purpose in the world, and he has compassion on those who suffer. He displays his power in the lives of those who need his grace. This widow needed his grace, he need, she needed his power, and he was there to show his power to her. And Christ speaks with authority. The centurion refers to Christ's authority. He says to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Christ speaks and the dead will rise to life. God has shown, God speaks, his spoken word creates. His spoken word brings death to life. Dead man sat up and he began to speak. Life literally surged in him. He was once dead in the coffin, now he's alive and he's speaking. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathed into the, the nostrils of Adam. He was given life. Before that, Adam was just a piece of meat. He was just a body. He was just flesh. But then God uh, breathed life into his nostrils, and life surged in him. You think about Ezekiel chapter 37, 11 through 14, the, the dry bones of the valley, and they came to life. Life comes from death. Life comes from 
uh, God gives life to that which was dead. Salvation by the power of God. God's mercy has made us alive. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. By God's mercy, by his great love, we are made alive in Christ Jesus. Salvation by the power of God, that we are once children of wrath, sons of disobedience, daughters of disobedience, and now are given life through the power of Christ Jesus, the power of salvation. It took someone who hated God and now praises his name that is a powerful, uh, that's revealing of God's power in people's lives. Like Messiah is the powerful Messiah. He is a purposeful Messiah in your life. He's a compassionate Messiah in your life. He's also a powerful Messiah to save you. If you're a, if you're a Savior, if you are, uh, put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you've been saved by Christ, God has revealed his power in your life. You are a, a walking example of God's power in your life, and God's compassion in your life through Christ Jesus. The last point here to kind of conclude is the reluctant crowd. So all this happens Christ purposely comes to this town. He purposely comes to this woman. He shows her compassion. He, she, he, he raises the, her son from the dead. But then the crowd's response. We see, we think that the crowd falls in love with Jesus, right? They glorify his name, it says. So they were gripped with fear. They began to glorify, saying, God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They understood they were in the presence of divine power. Fear was the natural response to seeing someone who was dead in a coffin and now no longer dead in a coffin. That is a natural response to something like that. If we were in that same situation and we saw someone who we knew to be dead, who then became alive, we would probably be freaked out. Fear would probably grip us. Even if you're one of those like hardened dudes, right, who just are not afraid of anything, I'm pretty sure you'd be peeing in your pants if you saw a guy who was dead and then brought to life. That's an natural response. Fear gripped them. It said they glorified what happened. They glorified God. Only God could raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he deserves glory. He is worthy of praise. We know that none, no other is deserving of glory in comparison to Christ. We, we established this in last, the last story. That God is worthy. Christ is worthy. Not, we're not worthy. The centurion is not worthy. But God is worthy of praise. Christ is worthy of praise. He is the one that, that they have been expecting. But he is much more than a great prophet. See, they gave him glory. They praised him. They praised him as if he was just like Elijah or Moses. That Moses has come back. That a new Moses has come, but Christ is far greater than a new Moses. He's more deserving of you the man. You the man. You just raised someone from the dead. You're awesome. You're a prophet. You the man. He deserves far more than that. He is deserving of our faith and our trust and our devotion. He is the one that they have been expecting, but he's much more than a great prophet. He is Christ. Jesus, the man God. He is the son of God. He is the, the, he is the son of the living God. What is the response of Martha when her brother Lazarus was raised from the dead? She says, you are the son of the living God. Not you're a great prophet. You're the son of the living God. You are the son of God. She understood who Jesus was. They did not. They thought he was just some prophet, some Elijah, some Isaiah, some uh, Elisha, some Moses, but he is far more than that. He was before Abraham, I am. He is that God. 
that was their reluctancy. They reluctantly associated Christ with God, that he is the son of God. Many will eventually fall away, right? Many will eventually fall away. This crowd of people that have accompanied Jesus for so long, they'll eventually come to a point where Jesus says, actually here in Luke, he says, well, they will, he says, they will um, take offense to him. He says, blessed are those who will not take offense of me, he says in Luke chapter 7. They will eventually take offense of him. They will find him offensive, and they will fall away because he is more than just a prophet. He is the son of the living God. He will not fulfill their wants and desires. Several of you many and many others sitting today in churches in this town alone are no different. You see Jesus as, such a cult- as only a cultural figure, but he's not, but he's not really real. He's just kind of like Santa Claus. He's just this cultural figure, this, this Jesus, this, this person that maybe never existed, that really doesn't have any power in my life. He's maybe just a prophet, some, some leader, some, some political leader, some good teacher. That's all that he really is. He's not Lord. He's no different than Muhammad or another cultural figure that defines their traditions and their customs. You should hear what Middle Easterns or Muslims say about Christianity. Oh, you just worship Jesus like we worship Muhammad. There's no difference. He's a great prophet. He's a great prophet. There's no difference. He is far different than just a great prophet. He is the son of the living God. He is Christ Jesus, the, the, the one who was and is to come. He is the word that was with God in the beginning. He's far more than just a prophet. Or some of you may think Christ is a luck charm. Jesus is just a luck charm. Many view him as this genie that gives them what they want to go to church to make themselves feel good and about themselves. Maybe when something bad happens, they have earned enough chips to ask God for something, right? Well, I've been to church, God. Remember, I've been every week and like I've been putting stuff in the, pot, in the, in the, in the basket. I've been volunteering. I've been doing nursery. It's time for me to cash in. I'm ready to cash in my check for you to brew something for me. I need this person healed. You heal them. I need a miracle. You bring miracle. I need money. You give me money. That's not what Christ is. He's not a luck charm. He's not a great prophet. He is the son of the living God. He is the Lord himself. And many are reluctant to accept him as Lord because they find him offensive. The son of the living God has authority over your life. He is the Lord over everything. He's the Lord over time, Lord over death. And he has something over your life. He has authority over your life. And we're reluctant to give him that authority, even though he already has it. Because he's Lord. Newsflash, he is Lord. And God has come. The widow in this tiny town of Nain was given her son back. I mean, she was given her son back. She, her life was never the same after that, right? This moment in time, this historical moment in time, it changed her forever. She got her son back. The purposeful Messiah, the compassionate Messiah, the powerful Messiah has come. There will never be the same. None are worthy of his compassion and his power, yet Christ has come and and lives are changed. The woman didn't deserve Christ's compassion. Don't think, well, she was a widow and she lost her son. She deserved it. She didn't deserve his compassion. Just the same way the centurion didn't deserve God's, Christ's power and authority in his life. They don't deserve this. We don't deserve Christ's compassion. We don't deserve Christ's power in our life. Even here, the woman never asked for it, did she? Christ doesn't say, well, you're of great faith. I will give this to you. It wasn't by her faith that Christ did this. It was by his compassion alone that he saved her, her son and did this for her. Because he is the Lord. And he did it to do something, to reveal that he is the one who has come. He is the expected one. And dead will raise from, the dead will be raised again. 
this is all about the gospel. That we don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. And some of us didn't even ask for it, did we? Christ saved us. We were hell bound and Christ saved us. Don't think for a moment that you deserve your salvation. You don't deserve any ounce of it. Christ gave it to you out of the simple compassion and love for you. Bring him praise. Bring him glory. And I want to conclude with this is Emmanuel, right? We, we're entering the Christmas season. Next Sunday, we're getting into Advent. We're going to talk about Christmas and the coming King and the Advent of Christ. And Christ has come. And this story really personifies, really shows that, that God is with us, that God is in the world. He touched this woman's life. But I think a lot of times what happens, as we enter into the Christmas season, cynicism starts to happen. Cynicism starts to bubble up. We hear the music, we smell the smells, we see the lights, we have traditions. And we're reminded about Christ constantly, right? I mean, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you know when Christmas comes around, all right, there's like Jesus is going to be born, right? The songs, joy to the world, Emmanuel, come all the faithful. It's all about Jesus, right? Even if you're not a Christian and you want nothing to do with Christianity, Christmas is like bam, right? You can go all Santa Claus, but you can't go all completely without Jesus because, like, it's on the radio. Your favorite songs are about Jesus. You can't get away from it. It's on the Christmas tree. There's an angel on the tree. Everything is reminding you that this holiday is not about Santa Claus, not about presents. It's about Jesus. But then cynicism starts to eat in. Because you're like, well, yeah, yeah, it's about Jesus, but Jesus is really the real, right? It's just for children. Christmas is for children. It's not about for adults. We need to be reminded, like kind of like when, when snow happens, you know, like even when you're not a kid, even when you're an adult, you love snow. Like when you wake up in the morning and it's all white everywhere, right? And that day, that, the day before, there was just, it was green or brown, and then the next day it's all white. That is Jesus when he entered in the world. The world changed. It was, it was, it was, it was radically changed because of Christ's presence in the world. He came, and we, we have to watch ourselves and not come out of this season with this sense of unbelief that all this is, this is not real, that Christ isn't real, that the, 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 the child in the manger isn't real, that Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men isn't real. None of that is real. It's just decorations for children. It's not real. And cynicism is about belief. You have unbelief. You don't believe any of this stuff. You don't believe that it's true that God came into the world, that Christ Jesus is real, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and whom I am the, 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 the largest of, or the worst of sinners. God has come. He, is, he came in the world. He is in the world. He is with us. He's with us to bless us. He's with us to sustain us. He is involved in your life. God has purpose in your life. He has compassion in your life. He shows his power in your life. We have to believe and we have to re-mystify our lives that nothing is just about, oh, I'm an adult, right? And all this, all this stuff is not real and all this stuff is for children. And, and we all we got to be an adult, right? Being an adult is not believing in all this Jesus mumbo jumbo. That's all for kids. It's not for me. I'm an adult. i got to make money and pay my bills, and that's what my life is about. And Jesus came into the world. If he came into the world, Jesus, the Son of God, the living God, came into the world, the life is completely different. You can't believe in this simple thing that all that matters to you in your life is paying your bills and making money 
Jesus came into the world. And therefore, he has purpose. He's the Lord over everything. He has purpose. So our, my encouragement to you as we enter into this Christmas season is to not to be full of cynicism. Don't fall for that trap. Embrace that Christ Jesus has come into the world. Christ Jesus, who is the purposeful Messiah, the compassionate Messiah, the, the powerful Messiah. And don't be like the reluctant crowd. Don't accredit to him as, well, you're a good teacher. Yeah, yeah, he was a good, important person. He is the son of the living God. Emmanuel, God is with us. Let me pray.